0: On Retrieving the Social Sciences, we bring the best of UMBC's social science community to you. I must confess that I don't often think very much about water. Sure, you know, I I think about it when I go to the beach or when I take a shower. I might pay some attention to the way it tastes or how cold it is when I drink it, especially after a really long run. Oh, and you know, I definitely think about it when it comes time to pay the water bill. Baltimore's aging water infrastructure is in dire need of replacement, and our bills keep going up, so the city can afford to repair it. I guess that's what happens when you live in a city that's been around since 1729. You know, I've even heard it said that some of the pipes downtown are still made out of hollowed out logs from the colonial era. But, you know, I'm not really so sure that that one is true. Of course, while I might not think about water except for what I need to use it or pay for it, scientists are thinking about it all the time. There are aquatic scientists who study the world's oceans, lakes and rivers, chemists and environmental scientists who study the water we use for drinking and recreating. But what about the social science of water? On today's episode, I'm delighted to bring you an interview with Dr. Maria Bernardo del Carpio, Assistant Professor of Economics here at UMBC. Dr. Bernardo del Carpio hails from Peru, and came to UMBC after completing a PhD in economics at Georgia State University in Atlanta. Dr. Bernardo Del Carpio is especially interested in environmental, development, behavioral, and urban and regional economics. For those who might not know much about these topics, I'll summarize Dr. Bernardo Del Carpio's interests in her own words. I'm particularly interested, she writes, in improving the designs of public interventions that affect environmental and social outcomes. In our conversation, Dr. Bernardo del Carpio explains her recent research on a critical outcome with both environmental and social consequences, that is, the conservation of potable water resources in Costa Rica. Let's listen in. Professor Bernardo del Carpio, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm really excited to have you and to talk a little bit about some of your research.
1: Hi, hi. How are you, Ian? I'm Maria, so you can call me just Maria.
0: All right, sounds good. Um, I'm doing well, doing well. Uh, really excited to be doing regime as a social scientist today. Um, and I really want to start out this discussion by talking about water, right? What a fantastic topic to study as a social scientist. You know, I mean, I I think about water as something that it's everywhere. I mean, that's kind of definitional, right? Um, In our daily lives, we're drinking it, we're bathing in it, you know, we're using it for a million different purposes every day. But we're not always thinking about it unless we're, you know, maybe like a chemist or we work at the water treatment plant or something, right? Um, Or like if our water shuts Mm -hmm. off, then we're very aware of it. Um, But as social scientists, you know, we're not always thinking about water, uh, or at least maybe I'm not. So I kind of wonder, I want to ask you, what first got you interested in this topic? Why are you interested in water as a, a phenomenon with a social scientific side to it?
1: Mm, so I, I would say that I'm interested in the study of uh, public services and good provision of public services and natural, the protection of natural resources and the environment, so it's kind of um, my work has been around those topics, and um, but it has focused a lot on water. Part of it because uh, genuine interest from since I can remember, and also uh, opportunities that appear. So uh, and I took them right, and I, I guess that's a good advice for for students and PG students and grad students uh, to take those opportunities. So. When I was saying that is something that uh, interested me since I was a child is because I come originally from Peru, and uh, even though I was from a middle class family, we had water problems. <laughs> so we had water problems, and we had water cuts uh, several days uh, in a month, and uh, and the reason for that is water problems are are basically caused by water scarcity and natural problems, but it's also a problem related to institutional issues. And kind of, we had our problems back in Peru at that point, we still have them, but we're institutional problems and we're also related to water scarcity. And uh, so imagine that a, a middle class family having water problems and in other parts, people didn't have connections to a public water pipe, right? And so I remember that my family had to buy, and several families had to buy water storage tanks. And so we had to fix the problem caused by inefficiency of the government. So, and that's a big impression for a child, right? So, and also visiting other areas in Lima, you you could see the, the, Problems related to water, um, water availability, so the scarcity, the scarcity of it. So that's that's kind of the first impression that I had. And then, water is a problem right now, and uh, not only in developing countries, but also everywhere in the world, right? Uh, pollution of water, um, this variability in rainfall, the fact that population is growing, and we are already we already have water problems and so in the future it might increase if we don't do something about them
0: wow so just going back to your anecdotes so when we talk about these this water rationing that was happening in your childhood was this like there were certain days of the month where there was just no water available to you at all or was it it rationed like there was a limit
1: uh there wasn't water available so tell us a few days before uh that i don't know on Tuesday and Thursday, we wouldn't have water. So we had to gather water the day before and just for the next day, right? So eventually people got tired, so they decided to do something about it. So those water tanks were available and so we would buy them and then that would fix the problem. But uh, that was the last resource, kind of make the investment, which was for a lot of families, a big investment. I remember that for several months, we had that issue. And other families who probably didn't have that option, they had to keep doing that, gathering buckets of water. And they are still doing it. There there are some families that are still doing it. And there are some families, as I said, that don't have a connection to a public water pipe. And they have to buy water from sellers and that's uh, that's something going on in a lot of developing countries right now
0: and certainly not something that maybe in the future would be limited to the developing world i think as we're seeing in the united states with droughts and climactic change, uh, a lot of uh, new questions being asked, right, about uh, the availability of water. And um, yeah, I think that's an incredible anecdote to to get us started thinking about some of your research. And it really makes sense as to why you would be so invested in this topic, Um, especially as we think about the breakdown of institutions. And as you're describing this need for a private Kind of solution to solve the problem at great cost to individuals and families. Um, And so I want to think specifically about some of the research that you've conducted in recent times. Obviously, you've been incredibly productive over the past few years, publishing on a variety of topics and economics, Um, but of course, I want to talk about water today, and I want to think about this uh, paper that you recently co-authored that appeared in PNAS, or the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. For those who are not in the know, this is a really big deal journal. It's a very cool one, and uh, everybody would be very uh, excited if they were to publish in that. So first of all, congratulations on uh, that publication. Uh, I'm really interested in in this paper, not only for, obviously, its great placement in this journal, but for the theoretical approach that you're taking here. Uh, Obviously, as somebody who uh, did their own PhD at Indiana University, I've got some experience with uh, the work of Eleanor Ostrom, who's a Nobel Laureate in economics. Uh, She spent much of her career at IU, for those not in the know. And in this article, you're building on some of uh, Professor Ostrom's theories of common pool resource management uh, in the field of water. So could you tell us a little bit about this theory um, of the common pool resource management, a little bit about the background of this article, um, and maybe also what this paper contributes beyond the original insights, uh, Professor Ostrom?
1: So part of Ostrom's work was in common pool resources, and common pool resource is a type of public good, pure public good. Right, where a lot of people share that resource, so it's non excludable and it also has a part of a private good in the sense that it's rivalrous. Right so uh, if I use that resource, there is less for everybody else. Examples of those can be a fishery, that's a kind of a common example that Austrum uses, uh, forests, irrigation systems, and in our case, uh, groundwater. So, to use the example of the fishery, a lot of fishers can catch fish in a certain area in in a sea, right? uh, And every time a fisher cuts some resource, there is less for everybody else, right? And um, Harding, which is somebody in the 70s, started talking about uh, common pool resources that this will definitely lead to a tragedy of the commons, right? So it's a common concept that we have heard before. So in the sense that um, because people want to maximize some fishers, to use that example, wants to maximize profit, they might have the incentive to fish, fish as much as they want. And so if everybody decides to do that, then uh, we are depleting the resource. So Hardin said, okay, that would lead to um, the depletion of the resource if uh, we don't do something about it. And what he proposed was to, that the government should intervene or that we need to give the property rights of the resource to somebody, to a firm or a somebody that should be responsible to take care of the resource, right? And that's where um, Ostrom's ideas are kind of against this, this idea of the tragedy of the commons, and because she says that uh, we don't need participation of the government, we don't need to provide the resource to a private entity, right? We can manage the resource sustainably with the help or, or the, the users, the citizens of, in a community, the users of the resource can manage the resource by themselves without intervention of anybody else. And she establishes design principles that would help this, uh, or that actually she identified these design principles as the ones that these communities were using in order to make this um, resource sustainable. And the concept became very important, Austrian concepts became very important and more and more the government the governments decide to give more power to the communities. And there has been so many papers uh, that follow those ideas, uh, several case studies analyzing the power of the people, right? So how people were able to manage these resources sustainably. And uh, there has been a lot of case studies and also observational studies but because the work became so important, so relevant, and, and used by, um, by, by governments in the sense that they were giving more uh, more responsibility to communities to, to protect these resources, then uh, the literature realized we have to um, do more uh, more rigorous work and establish, establish a model and establish the mechanisms behind which um, these communities are able to to protect the resource, so I, I, I yeah I, I mentioned that before. So also design or um, establish these design principles under which the communities are, are are able to manage the resource. And those are design principles are, for instance, monitoring uh, the use of sanctions, um, the uh, establishment of borders, biophysical borders, and also. Uh, social borders um, and other design principles, and and we focus on on monitoring. And so in our work, what we are trying to do is uh, first establish a model uh, through which these institutions, monitoring sanctions, borders, uh, affect the state of the resource, to test this model using causal inference, right? Establishing the causal effect of each of these, well, monitoring, but because we focus on it, um, we start start with monitoring, and to focus on the effect of monitoring on uh, on water, which is our case.
0: Wow. So monitoring is going to be really important here in this sort of bottom-up strategy, according to... Dr. Ostrom, according to this research, um, in uh, allowing this this resource to be preserved without the top-down influence of a government, is what you're saying. And, I I mean, that's a a fantastic insight because I think it really changes the way that we look at these resources, the way that we look at how, um, you know, how governments, how authorities involve themselves in these provisions. It's really a fascinating insight. And I want to sort of hone in on one thing that you mentioned is that there's really just not enough rigorous testing of these ideas out there in the field, um, it seems, from the basis of having read your paper, that you're doing some pretty rigorous testing of these theories. And I want to think about um, the fact that you were conducting this research in 181 communities in in Costa Rica. Um, speaking of rigor, that's that seems like a tremendous number of uh, observations to do this work. Um, did you go to these these uh, locations? Did you spend a lot of time in these communities uh, conducting the experiment, or did you have to um, sort of uh, work with other people in the in the area to get this data? How, how did this research actually uh, function from the perspective of data collection?
1: So I guess I would have to tell you before what a randomized control trial is, uh, the methodology that we use, and and then you can kind of figure out why we had to go to the communities and organize all the field work, right? So. Um, So in order to establish causal inference, we use a randomized control trial where we we essentially have a group of communities that are treated and a group of communities that are not treated, and and we select those randomly so that, on average, these two groups have the same characteristics. Um, And so we intervene on one of them, on one of the groups, right? So that every effect that we see after is because of our intervention. So that's kind of a a very simple idea, but very powerful because it allows us to see the effect of our intervention on our outcome variable.
0: It's a very powerful kind of logic. It's one that I I always think of people in sort of white lab coats in a psychological experimental setting where they've got people in a room maybe and they're doing some kind of intervention but this is we're talking about entire communities and so that's an incredible um sort of uh research process that you're talking about here is actually intervening in the communities in the field i mean that's that's an incredibly powerful kind of experiment so yeah tell us a little bit about how you constructed that intervention
1: Mm -hmm. so if you think about it so the most then it became more difficult because before our agents had been individuals so gathering around 300 or 400 individuals wasn't that difficult because we could work in I don't know 10 communities right but now our agent our subject was a community right so then being able to organize uh, a bunch of communities so we have enough observations, right? Because in these studies, we are concerned about the power of the intervention. And that means that if there is um, an effect, we have enough sample size to find that effect, right? So we don't want to have all a small, uh, sample size, and then we don't find an effect because we didn't have uh, enough sample. So we we have to have a big sample so that we are able to say, okay, we are able to find an effect if there is an effect, we are able to find an effect of 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 this amount, right? So that's a very important point. So and. So we needed a big sample of communities. And um, the good thing for us was that we had done work before in Costa Rica. So I worked between 2014 and 2016 in other projects in Costa Rica. So I knew the communities. I knew the leaders in these communities. I talked to the committee, the part of the committees in in, in the water management organizations. And I knew kind of that they were willing to participate, that they were willing to help their communities. And so that approach to the people was going to be easy, I would say, compared to others, that other situations that I can imagine. And that I, I knew the communities and kind of I knew where to do the workshops, right? To whom to talk in order to convince people and, and that this could be a good idea. So that 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 was an easy part. And um, so we had to we actually work. And that's important to mention. We work we work with uh, uh, Katia, which is a university and research center in Costa Rica. And we had done work before with them. So um, we prepare our field, tier, our field team, the one that went to the communities uh, we're from Katia right so very well trained people um and willing to help and interested on the on the problem right so um that's definitely needed and invested in the problem invested in the research and that was very helpful and and so um part of it was training this this field team and making sure that every everything works in the field. So I went there for this research. For every research, I go uh, to the field and make sure that the treatment is the same for every community. That's vital, right? Because we have to be able to say that everybody receives receive the same treatment. And this case was the installation of a monitoring system, right? Um, So we did workshops in every community so that everybody um, learned about the monitoring system, Um, and then asked people whether they wanted to participate and people that were willing to participate and to uh, help their community became the monitors. And then we trained them to do the monitoring, and for that they use an app, so we included technology, right? and that was basically it in in some words
0: wow that sounds like an incredibly involved process and one that i'm sure had a little bit of nerves attached to it as you sort of put this out into the field i'm sure that there were a few moments where you were thinking to yourself oh no i want to make sure this is perfect and there's a lot of Moving parts involved in this, right? Like you're mentioning the use of an app, training all of these people. Uh, but really, I think it speaks to the the fact that connections and local knowledge are really important in helping to carry out this kind of research. And um, I mean, I think that's it's a fantastic example of uh, social science research done right. Um, but I want to talk about your conclusions. I want to think about this uh, monitoring program. So what are the characteristics of a great monitoring program? You know, let's say that I'm, I'm really worried about my water supply. Um, I mean, thankfully, we live on the east coast of the United States. You know, we turn on the tap and it sort of feels like the water is endless until we get our water bill. But um, it's not, right? It's a finite resource wherever we are. And so what are some good Um, sort of principles of monitoring that this research has helped you to establish?
1: Uh, Okay, so the results of this study show um, small effects of the monitoring system, but in the right direction, right? So we find um, that citizens' users are more satisfied with the service. We uh, find better water quality and less water use. And so that indicates that the monitoring system had uh, positive effects. And so we always say that more applications are needed. And, And when we conclude this paper, we say, okay, this is the things that we think we could have done better, right? And one of the... One of the things that we explored in the in the research was to use these um, these apps. So the monitorings use their phones, their smartphones, to complete a survey about the certain, certain characteristics. Right? How was the water? Did you did you have water cuts? Uh, was the water smelly? Uh, did you see leaks around the community? Did you see people? Um, using water for uses that you are not supposed to, uh, to use it for. And so they were using this app to complete this survey. And so we kind of find that the technology is good to gather information, right? So, and, and, and monitors usually, because they, they, they know what the monitoring system is about, the, the ones that had the smartphone, the ones that knew how to use it, and usually young people were really the ones volunteered. Right? And we found that technology was good to gather information. That's very, that's something that has been seen in other types of studies where people, citizen science, for instance, where, where uh, individuals, uh, citizens are the ones collecting information, right? But in order to communicate the information, maybe technology is not the best. So, right, just send that information through a, uh, through a text message, so that the, all the people and the committee members of the of the water management system read the results uh, through the app. Maybe that's not the best way to make sure that they are reading the information. And so maybe we should try with other ways. Maybe just presenting the monitors, presenting the the information to to the people in a in a community workshop, and they do these community workshops. Uh, every six months, every year, so that they can present their results, and then they, they also the committee members can be accountable for those, right? And in these workshops, kind of promise or say what they are going to do in order to fix those problems, right? Uh, another point that we thought it was important was to keep monitors, monitors uh, incentivized and not. So we gave them kind of, I would say, it's a token of appreciation or a way to kind of solve their uh, or the fact that they were using internet in order to, to complete their task, we kind of gave them a very small amount of money so that they could um buy more data right because that's usually the way they use internet in developing countries so that they they won't be negatively affected by helping us right so that was kind of uh, that what they received but they were incentivized with messages so that we were telling them that they were doing a great job, that they were uh, helping their community, right? So the fact that they were helping their community, devoting their time to help others, that that recognition, I think it's very important. Or maybe eventually random prices so that they are also receive some kind of um, a price, right, for their work. And uh, so I think keeping monitors motivated is a big deal and, um, and telling them what they are doing, right? Uh, they are helping ours, and which is very important. And, and also something else that we learned here is that we need... So this was an externally encouraged monitoring system. So it's a monitoring system that wasn't um, endogenously created by the community. It was kind of proposed by us. If they didn't want to be part of it, then they didn't have to. But we proposed it, and and only the ones that wanted to have it were part of the sample where we did the randomization, right? So that's a big important part because all of them were interested, and we proposed it, and and it wouldn't work if monitors uh, were were not available, right? So um, this monitoring system had parts of people's intervention, citizens' intervention, and uh, people um, willing to help, willing to participate. So that was key, but we propose it. So that's why we call it I an mean, exogenously encouraged um, monitoring system, which is different to the one that Ostrom studied, right? Though She went to his communities, she saw people organizing in a certain way, and that's the that's how she came up with this design principle. So we, uh, based on her work, she said, okay, I see that people are able to be successful organizing themselves and managing the resource because they have these and these and these monitoring, sanctioning, uh, being able to constrain the, um, to establish borders for the for the resource, uh, biophysical and social borders, and um, conflict, uh, mechanism for, for conflict resolution. So so she found these characteristics but those were endogenously created by the community and ours is different in the sense that we propose that to people which is already an important point because it could be that in some places where they have a a common pool resource or they have to protect a resource right um and they have they are they are they have been able to organize themselves, but their monitoring system is weak or it's informal. Maybe we can propose something better so that they uh, establish that in their community and have them manage their resource. So in that sense, we said that this monitoring system needs to be part, and that's something that we learned, um, needs to be designed with the people. So we talk to some leaders we talk to the water management institution but i think we could have had more uh, more participation of the people so if people are participating and designing i think they would have been more uh, engaged with it and i think that's something that we could have improved
0: that's a fantastic insight and one that keeps coming up again and again across a variety of episodes of Retrieving the Social Sciences. uh, This idea that the buy-in from communities, this bottom-up participation is so important, not only to the actual outcomes that we're interested in as social scientists, but also to the process of research itself. And I'm so grateful that you shared some of that insight with us because I think it's so valuable to our understanding of both the outcomes of water management and uh, this monitoring process that you're describing. Uh, But again, also this this process of actually doing the social science that uh, is so unbelievably difficult sometimes, um, but which in the case of this paper, I think has borne incredible fruit. So um, congratulations again on this article. What a a rich uh, sort of source of of insights about the social world. Uh, Before I let you go, I just wanted to ask you one more question. And that is, um, you know, we have a lot of listeners to this podcast who are students, who are just getting involved in the social sciences maybe even for the first time Uh, and i wanted to ask you if you had any words of advice for students who are hoping to get more involved maybe even make a career out of the social sciences in the future
1: yeah i would say that based on my experience once you start studying a topic just read every paper related to that (laughs) so once you have to become the master of the topic that's definitely very important um and a lot of social sciences Use the statistical tools, and I think becoming more and more expert using those is uh, opens opportunities for research, right? That are interesting, and uh, I would definitely <laughs> advise to kind of go deeper into the waters of causal inference and use all the technologies available available right now, machine learning. If you are like studying technology. Learn all our languages because um, it, it kind of improves techniques uh, to, to get rid of effects that we don't want to. So, being able to, to improve our techniques are, is, is a good advice. And for PhD students, I would say, um, uh, right, right, right. And submit and correct and resubmit. And, and then that's something very important because sometimes we want to have the perfect paper, and that's there will be always somebody that tells you that there is a mistake, and probably there is one, right? And um, but somebody else won't find it. <laughs> I don't know. But <laughs> the, the thing is that um, moving your work, right? Uh, correcting your work, uh, presenting it and making it better and then um, there's a there's a moment where you can you have to move on <laughs> so that's i think it's important advice because we always want to get the perfect paper and that's not that's that's impossible
0: well maria bernardo del carpio Thank you so much for joining us today. For offering these insights, Um, certainly I agree with you that there's no perfect paper, but uh, this recent contribution you've made to PNAS is a pretty darn good one. So uh, thanks again, and uh, we really, really appreciate your time.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Campus connections.
0: Campus connections. Campus
1: connections.
0: Campus connections it's time now for campus connections a part of the show where we connect today's feature discussion to other work happening on umbc's campus today's campus connection is all about gullies while gullies immediately bring to my mind the epic 1992 g-rated adventure movie fern gully starring robin williams this recent article is about real gullies with real world impacts dr matthew baker professor of geography and environmental systems at umbc recently co-authored a paper in the Journal of Environmental Management. Dr. Baker and colleagues study the formation of gullies along roadways in areas of Brazil where sugarcane farming is intensive. The authors show that such gullies form more readily than previously suspected. So what's the big problem? Gullies can cause severe damage to agricultural lands, including soil loss, surface runoff, lower soil water holding capacity, lower quality and quantity of water, and many other ills according to a 2011 study on the subject by Jahantig and Pesarakali, Freshwater is a precious resource in our increasingly vulnerable world, and as it turns out, both successful common pool resource management and proper agricultural practices are necessary to ensure that we have it. Thanks to UMBC's social scientists, we might have a better chance of enjoying clean and plentiful water in the decades to come. That's all for today's episode. Until next time, keep questioning. Retrieving the Social Sciences is a production of the UMBC Center for Social Science Scholarship. Our director is Dr. Christine Mallinson, our associate director is Dr. Felipe Filomeno, and our production intern is Jefferson Rivas. Our theme music was composed and recorded by Dewan Moreland. Find out more about CS3 at socialscience.umbc.edu. And make sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, where you can find full video recordings of recent UMBC events. Until next time, keep questioning.